Hi, this is Gary Washburn, pastor of Grace Tabernacle. Thank you for tuning to our podcast today. Our hope is that this message inspires you and builds your faith. For more information about Grace Tabernacle and our ministries, please go to gracetab.org and like us on Facebook. Now, may the message feed your soul. All right. Well, I'm thankful to be here. Again, my name is Tyson. Um, I was invited by Pastors Eddie and Beth Taylor, who are my mentors, who I've known uh, for like 21, 22 years now. So I thank them for inviting me. I thank um, the pastors here for welcoming me as well. You guys have to be one of the friendliest churches I think that I've ever stepped foot in. Seriously. (laughs) You guys have been very gracious and we're very, very thankful to that. Uh, We're going to jump right in. Um, Genesis chapter 3. If you got your Bibles, open up your iPhones to Genesis chapter 3. <laughs> you probably didn't expect that on Christmas Eve, did you? It probably won't be the last surprise. Genesis chapter 3. We're going to start uh, in verse 1. Are we ready? Ready? All right. Genesis 3, 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said... I want you... We have to pump the brakes here for a second. Has God said... Do you think if Adam and Eve, who walked with the living word, face-to-face, communed with God enjoyed his presence without any sin or inhibition. Do you think if they were deceived, it might be necessary for us to stay within that word as well? Amen. Right? Especially today. Deception is mounting everywhere in culture, and it's not just on the outside, it's on the inside. It's within the church as well. So if Adam and Eve, who walked with God side by side, enjoyed unbroken fellowship, engaged with the word face to face, If they are able to fall in deception, how much more do you think this Bible needs to be open? And I'm preaching to myself. How much more? Indeed, has God said, you shall not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, from the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, you surely will not die. For God knows that in the day that you eat from it, your eyes will be opened. How many things in culture and society is telling you this will open up your eyes? This will open up your third chakra, whatever. Your third eye, right? This is, it's crazy how things never get old for the enemy. It's the same thing thousands of years later. The same promises that are made by Whatever it is in society that's trying to bait you and bring you outside of the plan and the will of God, it's always the same thing. For God knows that in the day that you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, lust of the flesh, that it was a delight to the eyes, lust of the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, pride of life. All sin comes down to one of, those, one of those three things, or more than one. 
Every sin, every temptation comes down to a lust of the eyes, a lust of the flesh, or the pride of life. Everything comes down to that. And she's looking at this and she's thinking, um, when she saw the tree was good for food and it was a delight to the eyes and it was, the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate and she also gave to her husband with her and he ate. And in that moment, the earth, the creation that God had given to Adam to exercise dominion over, to cultivate for God's purposes, in that moment, the earth was handed over to the devil. Which is why when Jesus is tempted in the wilderness, the devil says, if you bow down and worship me, I will give you all the kingdoms of the earth. He could say that because previously, Adam had given it to him. And so what is the Bible all about? It's about reclaiming what Adam gave to Satan back to the purposes of God. That's what the Bible's about. That's what your life is about. That's what your retirement is about. That's what everything is about. It's about reclaiming what Adam gave to the enemy for God until God's complete comprehensive authority is back established in every sphere of society. That is the purpose of everything. And kind of everything else in between is just vehicles and avenues to get that, that job done. Right? Okay. All right, let's keep going. Verse 7. Okay, now we need to back it up here for a second here because we need to see this. Listen to this. She took from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened. Did you see that? Eve ate. She gave the fruit to Adam. Adam ate. And then the eyes of who were opened? Both of them. Do you think there might be something about society's war on men and masculinity? Do you think there might be something about the fact that, you know, and I don't want to get all preachy about this about it, but do you think there might be something about the issues we see on the news? The things that we see and we read about, right? It's interesting that Eve eating the fruit didn't lead to the fall. It wasn't until Adam ate the fruit that both of their eyes were opened and now the earth was turned over. So the enemy's war against, against men and masculinity, which is not exclusively in that space, but the war against it is ultimately a war about taking out God's opportunity and ability to reclaim and exercise dominion over the earth again. He's trying to keep what's his. And that is a great deception and lie about all of that, which I'm not going to give any more attention to at this time. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. Verse 8. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. I want you to think about this, right? So we have, we're in here to do what? Worship God. Do you enjoy that? We are seeking after the presence of God. And here's what sin does. They're hiding themselves from the presence of God. The very thing that we're after, that we're pursuing, that we are trying to get ourselves into on a consistent basis is the very thing that they were terrified of and hiding themselves from. 
Now let's go back for a second. Where were they? They were in the place of God. Hiding amongst what? The things of God. From who? From God. You don't have to be in the world to hide from God. You can be in God's house. You can be in God's garden. You can be hiding behind God's things so that you don't have to confront the presence of God. I'm not saying that's true here. I'm saying that's possible. And it's easy to do. Because the presence of God will take everything away until you're laid bare. Even church stuff. I just, it's interesting. They were in his house behind his stuff when they were hiding. Verse 9. Then the Lord God called to the man and he said to him, where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman who you gave... Listen, the woman who you gave blames God to be with me. She gave, blames the woman, me from the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent blames the devil, deceived me, and I ate. So in one verse, one and a half verses, you have... Sin is acknowledged immediately. Blames God, blames the woman, blames the devil. Blames God, blames the woman, blames the... Who's not being blamed there? Himself. And guess, what, who, guess who does that still? You do. So do I. We all do it. She stopped being intimate with me, so I found somebody else. Blames the woman. You can assign your sin to anybody you want. It's still your sin. Verse 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed to you more than all, all cattle and more than every beast of the field, on your belly you will go, and dust you will eat all the days of your life. And here it is, verse 15. And I will put... Enmity between you and the woman and between her seed and your, and your what? Say it loud. Seed. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between her seed and your seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. Now there's some things that are lost here, right? Because English language is not... Um, the English language is not perfectly capturing everything that's being communicated. And that's not the first time that, that you know, that happened. There's, there's a thousand places in the Bible where, where that's true, where it helps to get back into the language to see what's being communicated so that you can really understand what's being said there. Because here we see that the, the, the seed of the serpent would bruise the heel. And then we see the seed of the woman would bruise the head of the serpent. Bruise, bruise. Tit for tat. But the problem is those are two different words in the original language. It's a poor translation. When it's saying that the seed of the serpent will bruise the heel of the woman's seed, it's, it's, it's saying just that. Flesh wound, surface wound, 
bruise, marking. But the actual word, when it's stating that the seed of the woman will bruise the, the, uh, the head of the, the serpent seed, the actual interpretation is that bruise means fatal blow. Fatal blow. Okay, ow, I got a bug bite. And then you got a Mike Tyson knockout and the guy's, he didn't, he didn't just pass out, he's dead. Those are two different words. So the seed of the serpent will bruise the heel of the seed of the woman, but the seed of the woman will deliver a fatal blow to the seed of the serpent. That's final. That's done. And this is the, this is the first introduction that we have into the gospel, right? Who knew the gospel was in Genesis, right? It's kind of funny that Genesis 3.15, almost John 3.16, right? So, yeah, just probably nothing there, but still. But this is the introduction of the gospel, which tells us what? Something we already know. God has a plan for the problem that's not yet happened. Right? He already had a plan. The Bible says that Jesus was a lamb slain before the foundation of the world. Before anything was created, his identity was already that of a lamb slain who would redeem mankind from their sin. All right, let's go to Isaiah 9. Isaiah 9, verse 6. Owen, will you run my water up here, please? There we give Owen a hand. Up. Give him a round of applause there. Thank you, buddy. You can go back and sit. Good helper. Isaiah 9, verse 6. For a child will be born to us. A son will be given. Not taken, given. And the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. And there'll be no end to the increase of his government or of his peace. You know, wrap your mind around that. You ever had a really peaceful moment? You can imagine if that continues to, like, you don't just stay in that state, but it's actually increasing. The peace never stops getting bigger and deeper. This is the type of peace that he brings. On the th there will be no end to the increase of his government or of his peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with the justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. Matthew chapter 1. And we're going to go to verse 18. <clears throat> okay, verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. Basically a quiet divorce. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. For the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name... Are you sure? Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins. 
Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with, God, be with child, and a child shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. Okay, John 1.14, can you put that up real quick? And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Okay, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That word dwelt, what it actually means is pitched his tent. It means pitched his tent. Think about that for a second. The word didn't become flesh and set up a compound. Okay? The word didn't become flesh and develop the village of Bethlehem. The village of Jerusalem. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. That word pitched his tent means, guess what? If he ever, if he gets extra hot outside in Jerusalem that day, do you think he might be hoping that you invite him in for a glass of water? If it's cold that day, do you think he might be hoping that you invite him in for some warmth? It's about the accessibility, the availability of God himself that he didn't set up this magical or this, um, this, this compound or this castle, but his dwelling with us is actually him in the humility and simplicity of him pitching a tent in your front yard. Emmanuel, God with us. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Verse 24. And Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary as his wife and kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son. Good job, Joseph. And he called his name Jesus. Chapter 2. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king. Okay. We got to stop right here. Herod the king. Was he a good guy? One so good. Herod was a tyrant. Herod had a reputation for being brutal, for being authoritative. Uh, he was seeking to expand his kingdom over the area and the region, no matter what the cost. He was king, and he wanted to make sure that everybody else knew it, and that nobody else would ever compete with him. Herod was God in his own eyes. Now, I want, you to, I want you to think about this. Because sometimes you get questions, or at least I get questions sometimes. Isn't it kind of strange that God, in the whole arc of human history, would decide to send Jesus, the Savior, the only hope of saving humanity, that he would decide to save him at this time? Isn't that kind of strange? Like, he didn't consult me, but if he did, I probably would think, I don't know, maybe Livonia, Michigan in 1955. <laughs> or... I don't know. Uh, Jasper, Alabama, pretty much any time. <laughs> right? Well, I, I, I would think like, you know, there might be a better time than during the rule of Herod the Great. There might be a better time than at this point in human history when there's a lot of disease, life expectancy is low. Like maybe do we at least want to send the Messiah at a time where technology is better? You know, he could have a platform like this. He could, he could have a YouTube channel. Hey, that's a pretty good idea. Right? Broadcast them to millions. But it's odd that he decides to send the Messiah, the one hope of the world, during the reign of Herod the Great, thousands of years ago, no technology, disease-ridden, lower life expectancy. That doesn't make any sense to me. That's like sending Jesus, that's like saying, God, 
What do you think the best place on time is to send the Messiah? Well, let's do in a barn in 1947, about a block from Auschwitz. How does that sound? But here's, what, here's what I want you to see here. Here's the point that I'm trying to make. God is birthing things in your contrary circumstances. God is birthing things in resistance. He doesn't care. It's a mockery to the devil. He doesn't care about the opportunity. He doesn't care about the resources. He doesn't care about the threats that are lodged against you, your purpose, whatever he's trying to communicate to you, literally in this account. And still to this day, God's activity is to birth things in contrary circumstances so that your trust would be in him and that through those contrary circumstances, he would make a mockery of the devil and exalt himself in fulfilling his purposes. He did it then, he still does it now, but by God, it takes a lot of faith to believe that, doesn't it? Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of King Herod. You gotta tell yourself, in the days of fill in the blank, whatever it is for you, in the days of this sickness, this hardship, whatever it might be, tell yourself that. In the days of whatever your King Herod is, God is birthing something new. I know it takes faith, trust me, trust me, I know. But that is what he does, that is his pattern, that is what he's continuing to do, and that is a word for somebody slash all of us this morning. Amen. Turn with me to John 19. John 19, starting in verse 17. I don't hear any crinkling. You guys are either really tech savvy or you're using the slides up here when they put them up. Either one, it's fine. John 19, verse 17. God is sending a seed. The solution is a seed. What delivers the fatal blow is a seed. They took Jesus therefore and he went out, bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull, which is called in Hebrew, Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two other men, one on either side and Jesus in between. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It was written, Jesus the Nazarene, the king of the Jews. Therefore, many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Hebrew, Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews were saying to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but that he said, I'm the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his outer garments and made four parts, a part to every soldier and also the tunic. Now the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, to decide whose shall it be. This was to fulfill the scripture. They divided my outer garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Therefore, the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus then saw his mother and the disciples whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. From that hour, the disciples took her into his own household. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished, 
to fulfill the scripture, said, I am thirsty. A jar full of sour wine was standing there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine upon a branch of hyssop and brought it to his mouth. Therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. Say it with me again. It is finished. And he bowed his head and he did what? Gave up voluntarily his spirit. And in that moment, the prophecy from hundreds or thousands of years ago in the garden, when Jesus spoke to the serpent and he spoke to Eve and he said, he will bruise your heel, you shall bruise his head. That fatal blow was delivered in those words, it is finished. Fatal blow to sickness, fatal blow to disease, fatal blow to poverty, fatal blow to sin, fatal blow to the devil. All his authority, all of his authority was taken back except for the authority that we give back to him. This is a, so, and I don't want to deviate too much, but this is what it's all about. It is finished. Fatal blow delivered. Which means that you are victorious and in the process of living this life, we are walking out becoming who? Who we already are, not who we hope to be. So the promise of Genesis, a long time later, was fulfilled. It is finished. Turn with me to Revelation, Revelation 21. We're going to start <clears throat> Revelation 21, verse, verse 1. So God promised, God promised a solution to the problem in the garden. He promised a seed. And he promised that that seed would deliver a fatal blow to the weak little seed's bruise upon his heel. Yeah. I think that's how he got his heel bruised, is that he stomped on his head. All right. Revelation 21. So everything from the garden, from the fall, from the sin, from the seed that was promised, to the life of Jesus, to the birth in contrary circumstances, through difficulty, through the threat of King Herod and everything there beyond, through the life of Jesus, to the cross, to the dying, to the it is finished, to the fatal blow. Everything of that storyline points us back here to the end. Now here's the thing about Revelation 21. Everything else has been fulfilled at this point. Revelation 21 is giving us a picture of what is yet to come. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And there was no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will, he will, except this time he doesn't pitch a tent. This time he does build a compound, and he gives you a room in it. When you get tired of that room, he gives you your own house down the street. And he will dwell among them. And they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe. Note that. He doesn't say that you'll stop crying. 
He doesn't say that he'll dry up your tears. What does he say? Wipe. Which requires what? Closeness. Contact. Do you see the intimacy of that? And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. For the first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. That includes you. And he said, Write, for these words are faithful and true. Then he said to me, It is finished. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of water of life without cost. He who overcomes will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. You hear that? For those who are in Christ, for those who have accepted his life, his salvation, for those who have repented of their sins and are actively seeking to stay out of them, this is the promised outcome to come. The seed was promised, the seed was sent. Unless a grain of wheat, unless a seed falls to the earth and dies, it cannot bear fruit. The seed came, the seed died, the seed was buried. The seed bears fruit now. Who died on a tree, who is the tree of life, who restores the garden in your heart, in this earth, until one day you pass over into the one that's created for you there with him. Verse 6, then he said to me, it is finished. Would you bow your heads with me just for a minute here? I don't want to assume that anybody is standing in that promise. Some people are not on the track to that life. Some people are not hidden underneath the shadow of the cross. So I just want to give an opportunity if there's anybody here who has not surrendered their life to Jesus who maybe has entertained the thought, who maybe thought they did, but they're not sure, who maybe did once upon a time, but life happens and who knows what's going on now. Jesus came for sinners. He didn't come to pat a church on the back who put themselves together and say, good job. So real quick, If you're not right with God, if you don't know him at all, or if you did, and again, life happened, and you know you're at least one foot off the track and you're trying to get back on, would you just lift a hand real quick so I can see you?
Well, thank you, Lord, for these people that you have sealed. Thank you for these people that you've brought together. Lord, we thank you for sending your son. We thank you for the promise, Lord, that was made before we were born, for solutions to our own problem that we would find ourselves in. Thank you for delivering the fatal blow to our enemy, Lord, that we could stand victorious in you. Lord, I pray that you would fill us anew with your Holy Spirit. Pray that you would breathe upon us, that you would refresh our understanding of what you've done, what you're doing, and what you promised to bring us to. In Jesus' name. We're going to move into a, a time of communion here. If anybody does not have a cup, you can just raise your hands and one of the ushers will bring one to you. Otherwise, if you have it, go ahead and get it ready. You bring me one real quick. I realize I didn't have one up here. Thank you again. Does everybody have one? Let's just take a quick minute. Let's not do this lightly. Let's not do this quickly. Let's not do this out of routine or ritual. The Bible says to examine yourselves. Examine your heart. Examine your motives. Just take a minute and allow God to speak to you while you search yourself. While they were eating, Jesus took some bread and after blessing it, he broke it and he gave it to his disciples. He, you see that? He blessed it, he broke it, and then he gave it away. He said, take, eat, this is my body. Go ahead and take it. And when he had taken a cup, given thanks, and given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink from it, all of you. For this is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. Go ahead and take the cup. Father, how fitting that we would celebrate communion in celebration of your birth. 
or the mission of your birth being the death and redemption of mankind. Lord, I pray that you would fill us here with your spirit, fill us as we go. Renew in our minds and our hearts, God, an affection for you, for what you've done for us. Lord, and a deepened faith for the promises that you've made, regardless of our circumstances, and how by your grace we'll walk forward from here, empowered, victorious, and prospering. And happy birthday, Jesus. Amen. Well, thank you guys for coming out, spending your Christmas Eve morning here. Thank you for the opportunity to come. Um, I pray that you would be blessed on the way out. Pastor Paul, anything else? Okay. Thank you guys.